We live in a world of limitations and boundaries and live in a world of, I think, where you grow up and you, you develop your own self-limited beliefs based upon everything that you experience or the, the labels that you might get given. Um, and life is full of those obstacles and curveballs, but they're, it, it's all down to how you look at them. You can look at them as negative things or you can look at them as as opportunities. Uh, hello humans, welcome to the Limitless Podcast brought to you by Martin, that's me. Phil, that's me. So, uh, oh, go on, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah. Pete, yeah. Yeah, sorry, uh, you no, didn't no. introduce me, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was jumping, so join, join, I yeah. was jumping the gun a bit there, yeah. Yeah, and me, Pete, Pete Kenyuk. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Pete, much appreciated. I was going to do a quick intro about your cycling career but one of the things i was watching recently on youtube was the short documentary with uh wahoo two years ago now at the back of that you talked about uh sort of post cycling you had, uh, sports psychologist was helping you and right at the end of that you talked about sort of identity and you kind of sort of smiling face called i'm pete kenyuk the cyclist yeah we're two years on from that now so before i define you with some some cycling goal where are you in that journey in regard to your identification yeah i think it's that only been two years Seriously, yeah, November twenty one. Wow, think. feels about when it's published. Se- feels about seven years ago that for a start. So, mm-hmm. uh, no, that was an interesting time. I was still on the sort of verge, or the idea that I might come back to sport in some way, shape, or form. What what sport that was going to be at the time? I was unsure. I was training quite a lot, and yeah, sort of got into triathlons. Um, but then through that documentary, uh, I realised. I don't know it wasn't it wasn't like I went into it with the idea that I wanted to come back to cycling but because it was you know we went quite deep into my past into my childhood uh, into my career obviously it brought back a lot of you know fond memories and um, by the end of it and like you say it was a lot about you well my psychologist tried we tried to figure out and a big part of his sort of idea around being you know an elite sportsman is is was what is your actual actual identity, especially when it comes to retirement? Um, but yeah, by the end of it, it was that's just who I felt who who I was, and that's you know I'm happy with that. I don't, you know, fast forward in the clock two years, it's not. I don't really wake up in the morning and think I'm Pete Kenyuk the cyclist, but I guess that's that's who I am. It's it's in my blood, and that's you comfortable who, with that? Uh, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, and, and you should be with the following accolades that we'll just briefly run through. <laughs> so obviously, ridden all three Grand Tours, uh, finished all three Grand Tours, or Tour of Austria, Ocean, Cadell's, Cadell's race in, in Australia, uh, the national titles. And obviously in 2020, well, whether you consider 2012 the pinnacle, but one of the subjects I want to talk about is human performance. So uh, when we talk about 2012 and the gold medal, so a little stat I, I learned online is on, in 2012, I didn't count them, but broadly 7 billion people in the world. And at the Olympic Games that year, there was 302 gold medals issued. So of that, statistically, the, the chance of winning a medal is 0.00004% of the human population win a medal. Are you busy? I have, I have. <laughs> so when we talk about human performance, as, as uh, Phil and I yeah. do, we talk about the pointy end of human performance. And I think it's fair to say it, at that moment and really throughout your career against similar stats with regard to becoming a pro cyclist the stats aren't massively different you're at that very pointy end at, at that stage in your career so perhaps looking at human performance back then and through those early days through the academies etc how would you have defined human performance from a sports perspective well i think we need to in a way start from the beginning because there's a lot of work dedication and these might you know come back around into the sort of elite performance that we're talking about um, repetition that goes on before you even get close to, to being that 0.01% or whatever um, and I'm even seeing it now with you know got four kids and Emerson he's really getting into cycling um, but in a fun way and he, he you know he was he was rubbish to be honest I remember thinking God, when I was five I was bombing around this BMX track and going away and doing races and this, that and the other but I've just spent a bit of time with him over the last couple of weeks and just just that consistency um, he's just came on so much uh, so I think you know and I spent my whole childhood just riding my bike 
and you know to get to that 0.01 percent there's so much that goes into it before you get to the point of where you can you know start to start to really talk about what you did and how you got into that mindset and how you got there um it's interesting the repetition we've chatted to someone recently yep. you know it's the same rep whether it's weights whatever mm -hmm. it is but we're talking about a footballer where now in the academies they're not looking for the flair they're looking for the consistent same repetition repetition done correctly done correctly and i guess it's the same throughout yeah throughout all the sure. sports. i think because uh, there's obviously that conversation isn't there and talent and nature and nurture isn't it but i'm a big believer and i think you've got to have a little bit of maybe something there but even now when i look at my life and how i live and it's quite it's not the healthiest lifestyle and i don't do that much sport but i mean from a cardiovascular point of view i think for, for the fact that I, I cycled and trained at such a high level from the age of sort of well i'd say high level probably 10 because i was really you know seriously going away competing at that age up to 29 30. i mean i could probably do like a couple of 5k runs and then just almost be able to bang out a half marathon no problem um, but that that comes down to everything I've done my whole life, you know. Stacking up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but, sorry, going back to the the main the main question before I went on that tangent was <laughs> sorry. What was it? What's it take? So I suppose yeah, that human performance back in those sort of academy days and and being a professional, what that ultimately ultimately was defined as was that uh, the actual performance of the day, or was it the process to get to that point? And what, what ingredients were part of that? So I well, assume mind was one, obviously bodies and other. Yeah, it's all about the process. Um, and that's what I, I mean, for me. Did you enjoy that part of it? I, I did for a long time and then didn't. And that's a big part of, of, I would say, why I sort of maybe slowly stopped performing to the best of my ability because I personally forgot about how much hard work and sacrifice and dedication um, I put in. But I mean, I think if you look at sort of the pillars of, of what you need, it's commitment um, against motivation. I think motivation, you've got motivation comes underneath that. And the difference is motivation is, it's an emotion almost, it can come and go, you know, yeah. um, where commitment, it's always there. Um, I think was that taught in the um, in the in the track program? The only reason I ask is because I heard Ed say exactly the same oh, thing right, when I was presenting yeah. him. So I was wondering, is that where you picked that up? Yeah, well, we we worked a lot with Steve Peters, which he's a sports yeah. psychologist um, from the age of fifteen, sixteen, which you might have seen in the um, in the documentary as well. Yeah. Some of the stuff that I sort of used and didn't use because there's a lot of stuff that I didn't agree with um, that he tried to sort of implement um but yeah it might have been one of the one of the topics that was discussed i think and then also the need you've got to like need it i don't think wants enough people loads of people want to do everything they want to be footballers they want to be superstar djs they want to do this do that but you literally need to have this burning desire in you that it's, it's all you can think about you go to bed at night thinking about it and you wake up thinking about it i was in school and I'd be thinking about going on my bike on a Saturday morning as I was leaving school on a Friday. I'd be thinking about it all week. Um, when I was 15, 16, I went out with my mates once or twice like you do, and it just didn't interest me. So it's interesting, that, that fine line, because you hear, you know, even sports psychologists will say that younger age, you've got to have a variety of things. Your, your identity maybe can't be cycling at 13. Yeah. Maybe that, that need... What, where is that balance or is it do you feel you to get to that very elite it needs to be so the, the be all and end all the, this is the difference it shouldn't feel like you're unbalanced because if you need it then if someone's putting pressure on you and saying you need to do it and you want you need to need it and it's coming externally then that's where it's it's not okay and that's where the the, the sort of yeah you, you struggle with the balance but if if you literally if you're obsessed with something then that's fine because it's giving you what you need. If you look at like I mean, look at any top sportsman. I think, so, I mean, you might argue, there might be some some sports where it's been different and they've had you know, relaxed childhoods and they haven't they've only got into the sport late. But nine times out of ten, I mean, look at the the David Beckham documentary that came out recently. He was kicking a ball around in that tiny garden as soon as he got home from school. And that's all he could think about. Um, Be Beckham's probably a great example, isn't it, of like nature nurture. You know, 
it is like insane repetition with Beckham. And I don't think, I, I think everyone, anyone that knows anything about football kind of knew that all along. But then when you watch a documentary and you hear Beckham talking about like the repetition that he did with his dad, just taking free kick after free kick after free kick. And then you see that, that, that skill that he's got of the way he kicks the ball. Yeah, and that, that was interesting about his dad as well. What we were just touching on briefly there is any kid at that age of their dad was saying, you know, kick it again, kick it again. You know what teenagers are like? They didn't want to do it. They go, nah, I'm not, I'm not, like one of my kids would just throw a strap and walk off. You know what I mean? So he obviously, there's the pressure there from your dad, isn't it? But he wanted it. And it's all, you've even seen it into, into the latter part of, of his career when he didn't really need to to go back to Italy and play again, yeah. but he just, you know, the passion, it was always there for him, and I think that's that's a big difference. Yeah. Not, not a great comparison, but I really want to be a uh, fighter jet pilot when I was young, and uh, uh, obviously you really want to be a cyclist. What what distinguish you to what what you know? Think back to those young days. What what made that drive and me not fly a plane? Do you Pull think? Ups. Hmm? Pull ups. Pull ups. <laughs> There's a the fact that I don't like flying as well probably didn't help. But like, what what distinguishes? The, I mean, were you that, going about what, what finds you, that need? I was I was like reading every single page of Cycling Weekly magazine like every week. Yeah. I was going to bed thinking of it, uh, and I I also which it, which is interesting. It was it was that much of a. I looked up to the professional cyclists, and it, I was in that much awe of them that I didn't feel like it was ever going to happen. It was like a, it was it was this dream, so, but I was just. I'd find it quite easy then just to go, you know. Yeah. So it's no chance of that. It's, that's I guess why people love me. There isn't everyone at the top of the least sport because. Um, yeah, I'm quite an obsessive person as well. I want to get my head into something, but it ha- it's it's either it's black and white for me. I'm either all in or all out, and. Um, it's part of it's a wiring thing, I guess. That maybe that's something you see that 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 need if that's the word that P uses that 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 need is. Yeah, yeah, I, and. And you've got, I suppose, enjoyment's a big thing because when you're enjoying something, you don't mind going out and you know doing all that sacrifice. But I think, like Pete was saying, once that enjoyment disappears, and then it becomes an obligation, and then it's after a while, you suddenly like, you know, the the, the that desire and that passion, that love starts to drop out of it. It gets it gets harder and harder. Out of curiosity, was it? Do you, remember an age when you kind of realized actually I am going to make it you know you're saying like you're looking at all of these cyclists that you looked up to was there a time was there a race was there a point where you thought actually I'm, I'm, I've got a chance here uh, I won the world championships on the track when I was 15 um, but still then didn't feel you know the, to be a professional was still miles away um, it was then I moved to Italy on the under 23 team yeah, uh, and the first half of the year I got my head absolutely kicked in, and still then I was like, like you had to win. And back then there wasn't there wasn't power meters. You couldn't sign anyone on potential or these big numbers, which happens now. Um, you had to win probably at least two or three races. Yeah, and um, with a load of other results backed up by that, because that's what they went on. Um, and the first six months, I honestly just got my head kicked in. Had no had no clue what I was doing. Because you go from racing under 16 races which are they're still quite they're running an amateur way they're racing an amateur way it's um it's a big big leap the under 23 scene is, is a lot closer to to what goes on as a professional yeah um so there, there was a lot to learn um and there was a lot of fitness to be gained because the distance as well went up and even then i was after being junior world champion still thinking this is going to be difficult really difficult um how to keep that motivation and that need in times of let's call it fail, we use the word failure. So I think it's not bad works with fail when we don't win things. How do you keep that self belief? The, the the idea of of improving for me, I was I, I never felt at that point because I was only eighteen. You know, I was never at the point where I was like, this is my limit. I can't get any better. So as long as I could see, I guess I was as well seeing you know small um, small increments of improvement then that was enough to, to keep feeding the sort of desire to to train harder, to work harder, um, and then turn professional. But yeah, I went, after the first six months, I went home for a short break mid-season, came back and then won within the first three weeks of being back, won two races as a first year under 23. Um, 
what um, one of them was one of the biggest races in Italy at the time, Cappadoco. So then I was like, yeah, that's when I was, this could be, this could be possible. Mm-hmm. The, uh, again, part of those early years, uh, we talk about process, the process, and, and the, the, I guess is inbuilt into, into athletes. Habit buildings, which is something we talk about, an important part of that, whether that be healthy living, good sleep, etc. Was that something drilled in from an early stage? Assume from I don't know whether it's a parent becomes a parent thing and an inner thing, or from the the sports team around you, let's call them. Yeah, um, I think the biggest difference between the now and then is that sort of area wasn't sort of you, you picked up a lot of stuff about nutrition and habits just just by living that lifestyle in a way it sounds kind of stupid and sort of did you appreciate what that was at the time no i had no no idea i was just like for me i was obviously going to bed early and i had an incredible routine um it's only now when i look back on what i was doing then and what i was doing towards the end of my career like i said before i'd almost forgot what i what i put in and what i was doing in order to get there um, and is that is that then you, is that like if you don't mind ask a cocky thing in your mind going well I've done, not I've done the grind but or is that just a slip in a standard I think where does that come or, I think or, it's or falling out of love with the sport or a slight drop in passion and complacency oh. you got to remember it was 12, 13 years gap from when I was doing all the correct stuff yeah, right. um, so yeah I'd say complacency was, was a big one for me is that regret now? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a regret because I didn't really. There was with me saying this. There was periods where I was probably more focused and more um, switched on than you know when I was trying to turn pro. But at the same time, that was to do with the motivation and not not my commitment to the sport, yeah. which is why, you know, I was quite sporadic with my results um, just because of that. You know, lacking that consistency. Yeah, I think again, like Doc, you touched a bit about that. Is it spring blues, maybe the term you used? Yeah. And, uh, but I don't know from a psychology point of view how much of that becomes, you know, like any, in any position you tell yourself you're ugly, you keep reinforcing that message to yourself. It becomes well, the right psych, you know, philosopher term that you'd use for that. Yeah, I mean, I remember like when I was at the basic training for the Royal Marines, what you'd find is any period where uh, you'd had leave, so uh, Easter, summer, but especially Christmas. When people come back, you get the most people drop out of training, the most people would quit. And that's because you've been home, you're out all the time with your mates having fun, you kind of get this false perception of that's what reality is, that they're out all the time having fun. You, and especially Christmas, Christmas was a, a really pivotal time. You come back in January and it'd be absolutely minging weather, it'd be freezing cold, and loads of lads just be like, nah, nah. So it wouldn't be the training that broke them. It'd be going home and then coming back to training. And I imagine that's probably the same in spring. You know, you, the races, it's probably Ming and weather. You, you're doing all the cold stuff. And and you're kind of like, might, I just put myself in Pete's shoes. It must be like, fucking hell, this is brutal, this. Yeah. Um, and, and especially if you've been home and you've had a good time and you've seen all your family and friends, you had loads of fun. It, it's difficult to get going, I think, with that environment. Yeah, yeah, I completely understand that. I think my only argument against it is I still feel quite low at that time of the season now. Okay. But not I can deal with it a lot better because I don't have the external pressure of having to perform or be at my best. Um, and as soon as that period of the year is over, I feel like when I wake up in the morning, I'm not foggy for you know four or five hours of the day. Um, it's and I only I only really. I only realise that I'm I'm like that when it you know it comes into May June time and I'm like, wow, I've got this I've got my energy back you know I'm back to my I feel like my old self, but when I'm in it I don't really realise that I'm really that down or depressed. But it's it's a lot more it's a lot more manageable. Was there ever an option to go to like sunnier climbs then? Do you think do you think it's 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 weather influenced, not weather dependent, but weather influenced? Yeah, I d- I'm not like I've racked my brain for years and years trying to get to the bottom of this I thought it was to do with the fact that I was too relaxed during the off season you know yep. partied too much ate too much shit food wasn't wasn't taking my cycling serious enough had you know too much of a break but you know one year I did the complete opposite and was really on it all winter went to down under in January 
won that race that you mentioned at the start. Uh, I was like, right, I've cracked it, getting there. Um, and then, yeah, did San Remo. And then it was just after that, just started to absolutely swing again. Like, felt like complete utter shit. Uh, Do you see pl- that dealing with people like the... I'm not saying there's not a, a chance, but that becomes almost just a, a mental hurdle that you can get athletes, and obviously not... You talked about rattling your brain and ultimately trying to find an answer. Can it just be a manifestation that because of perhaps two you know two years in a row happened to be ill? And that's what on, that's what I started to to think that it could be to do with that. Um, but I mean, if, if you look how far, well, not just the sports came, but the, the world in general. I mean, it used to be called April disease. Like there wasn't even a talk or mention of any mental health or slight depression. It was literally Pete's got April disease. Was, it, was that mm-hmm. was <laughs> so? That... That's two thousand and fourteen to. 14 to 16, 17. Was that more in cycling or was that more, uni- is that a universal? Because I've never heard of it before, but I, I've heard of like spring blues, but yeah. like actually referring to it as April disease. Oh, no, it was called, it was only called April disease because I had it in April. Right. Sorry, okay. it's not, it's not yeah, referred yeah. to. Right, oh, right. Was... That's what I mean. It was kind of like, oh, Pete's got April disease. He's, he's you know, we yeah. haven't seen him in a month and a half. Mm. Well, weird. But it'll be back in May. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but I, I think, just to sort of round up the difference between the start and the end, I think big one for me was was passion. I mean, when I was training for the Olympics 2012, obviously we don't have a velodrome here. I was going to Manchester, staying in the Holiday Inn for two weeks, literally just eating like porridge pots on my bed at like seven o'clock at night from the Asda across the road. And completely and utterly fine with it, no problem. Wake up in the morning, bang, straight back on the track, let's do this, you know. If you'd have put me in a holiday in room for two weeks with eating porridge pots when I was 28, um, I would have been like, there's more, to, and that's what started to creep in actually quite a lot. It's got to be more to life than this, you know, with a lot of the sacrifice. And so, so I guess that could be, that could be part of, well, I wouldn't say my decline, but yeah, how, how the difference in my thought process between, you know, the start and early parts of my career compared to the, towards the end. And I, I don't know whether, this is just an observation. Watching cycling, there's more of an enthusiast. There, there seems to be more athletes that finish their careers early in cycling because of the things you've described yeah. than perhaps any other sport. And I don't know, is that, is that the, the brutal regime of being a pro cyclist at the very top and the relentlessness of it? Uh, I think with what you're saying there, particularly my generation. Right. You know? Um, and I think it's partly due to the fact that cycling changed so much, so much in, in that generation because like I said it went from sort of old school training to where you just had literally a computer on with your distance and your speed to every absolutely everything you're doing was monitored yep. training changed massively um, you, you, for, for example it used to be five hours go out go to a climb do a minute hard a minute easy um, ten times roll back down the hill do it again and ride home to you couldn't even go out for a, a social ride anymore because you had to be riding in a, in a power zone and that happened in my generation of cyclists yeah obviously some cope with it all right like look at mark cavendish but he's always kind of stuck to his guns in a way yeah he's always kept it quite old school but um almost a guinea pig of a generation yeah the, the, and the younger ones now will be fine because they've not run themselves they uh, well they don't know any different yeah, yeah. so yeah that like that this is the sport they were born into so unless anything changes drastically, they're, they're totally okay with that and that's the difference. They don't they don't get that, why would you? They want training. Like if I didn't get training off my coach for a week or two, even when I was professional, I'd be like, oh, I'm absolutely really happy to just do my own thing. Yeah. But they're literally knocking on your door, like where's my session? You know, what am I doing? To, if you say three hours general ride, what's a general ride? What power do we need to be? And I'm like, just go and ride your bike. Yeah. And I suppose like the, the sport that you absolutely fell in love with as a kid and the romance of it all, watching the Tour de France, the, the, the way you described it there, you know, the, the, for me, you know, only as a, like a, a very, very rubbish amateur cycle, not even an amateur cycle, I've never even competed, but the social element is so huge, isn't it, going out for a ride with everyone, and even if you're pretty rubbish, being able to go out for a ride with like great riders, but if that can't happen and then suddenly that it's a different very culture different, very different culture and it felt like a completely different sport as well uh, when you mentioned just, the Premier Inn and, and sitting on that I, I envisage the rallies you little load of other lads on your and it's almost a team thing and you're with your mates on yeah. doing those things 
Yeah, well, they, they all lived in, in Manchester. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Usually, I mean, on training camps, it was great. But that was just a, just an example. But yeah, I mean, cycling's really, it's almost like swimming now. It's get in a lane, put your head down and do your reps. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder, you look at that, that 20 years, you're in that, that, that space that, as a guinea pigs, the, the kids coming in now, let's say 10, 11, there's things, uh, obviously, we talked here about identity, we've talked about process we talk we want to talk a bit about resilience that they're probably building into that training program those let's call them life skills for want of a better expression that maybe as guinea pigs you don't get you, you're getting the 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 uptick in performance and, and that side of it but they're not really looking at let's call it mental health mental well-being yeah so you're not then later in life necessarily yeah it's the found that. foundations which support those pillars yeah yeah that you're working yeah. with basically and yeah you are right to a certain extent because we're mean, all talking about mental health now where certainly i go back 20 years none of us would talk about it no god no head down ground. even if you look at the sort of like the post-race interviews they're all so straight and aren't they and but and i think that's where obviously like sky with steve peters where we're ahead of everyone else and and and, and it's worth mentioning as well you know um, when we started working with jld condor with pete's brother tim john herrick was at um, who's you know he's been in cycling since pretty much the start of time, but I remember him saying when we first started doing the performance coaching that never in his whole career in cycling has a dip in performance been anything to do with physical or bike. Usually it's something going on at home. Usually it's break up with girlfriend or whatever it is. It's it's fallout with teammates. And what he used to say was not calling it mental health, but saying that it was. The stuff in between the years was, was would be the reason or the consequence for the dip in form, and that was before where really mental health was used as a topic. So I think that people were doing it. John Herrick is probably a good example, old school manager, um, but in very different ways, and in probably in isolated pockets as well. Yeah. So so let's dig in a bit about resilience then. So sort of second pillar of our discussion. Yep. The. Uh, Again, that documentary, I keep referring back to it, but you, you were actually reading that journal. I think you were writing when you were maybe 16, 17, maybe even younger. Oh, yeah. And in, in that journal, you made a comment, you read some of it, and then went, God, I was quite, quite a thinker. Mm. So if we, if we apply that to, like, apply to myself, I probably overthink, overanalyze things, which if you're not in the perfect, for me, this is a personal fact, in the right mindset, you can, it can be a negative impulse. So do you think through your experiences up to this point in your life that, your thinking helped you, hasn't helped you, is a benefit, not a benefit? I think the most important part of that is how to control your thinking. Would you agree? Yeah, Phil. I yeah. mean, it's a, it's a great asset to have. And going back to did it help me? Yeah, absolutely. When I look at sort of how Dave Brailsford ran Team Sky and what he did at the end of the year, the start of the year, and sort of the the review process of what I was doing that without even realising just by thinking you know I'd get back from a race I'd almost review my my result how I rode um, what I was thinking during the race what I could have done better how I was going to improve myself for the next race um, and yeah looking back it was quite deep but they're obviously quite important sort of aspects of any form of life aren't they mm. um, whether it's business sport or whatever and is there a negative, like, do you have negative? You and you got, I mean, we all think negative at certain times, but was there much of that creeping in if we talk about performance that, or would you just go, this is what I did wrong, this is what I need to do better and move forward? Yeah, I was quite sort of, it's a word, not clinical, but um, I was quite good at like compartmentalizing thoughts at that point, which is strange because I'm, I'm, well, I'm still all right at it now, but <laughs> uh, for, for that age, yeah, I was quite good at yeah, saying, you know, this is what I did wrong and I, would, I wouldn't linger on it or let it fester. I was quite good at just leaving it at that race and then moving on to the next one and working. And is that that's when you learn in the academy or just a skill that you think you had or just the way you worked? It's, I, I just, it was just a natural, it was, it was just how I worked. And I, 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 I realised very early on that you can't sort of dwell on, on anything because you'll just end up falling behind. Yeah. Because it. it's a cutthroat world, I mean any sport but cycling was back then uh, especially if you want to make it you know you needed to be able to take take the banter with the lads you needed to be able to hurt yourself you needed to be able to crash and get back up um, and you just just you learn to just brush it off and move on and I think that was probably the only negative I, I ended up 
with from that was an, an emotional side, I would say, in my normal life because I became very bad at... If anything happened, I could just pretend it didn't, basically, and just put it to one side of my mind, whether that be anything to do with like your parents or your wife or any sort of other relationships. Um, I was really good at sort of not not really understanding and listening to my emotions because I became so good at just switching them off. Because, I mean, even if you think about a Tour de France stage, I don't know, say in the mountains in the second week, you've, you've got to become an absolute professional at telling yourself you feel good because every <laughs> single bone and muscle in your body is absolutely killing. And if you let one sort of one part of your brain tell yourself you're hurting, then you're out of the race, basically. And would that be the chimp in the Steve Peter scenario? It would be, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's a lot of similarities with like soldiers and police. Yeah. Then, you know, you, you have to, the, the, the metaphor, the analogy that's often used with military guys, they build a wall up around their emotions because, you know, when you see stuff or when you experience stuff, if you don't do that, then it's going to really have an impact on you. But the consequence of that wall is no one gives you instructions how to take it apart at the end. So you end up with these soldiers that have de- developed this way of thinking, which is to compartmentalize all their emotions. They can experience things that you know most people would consider completely just unworldly traumatic. Um, but then the problem is at the end of their careers, like they sat there and they just have that wall and. I imagine some athletes are the same, you know, you, you don't get instructions here, well, how do I, this strategy that's worked for me all through my career, how do I unpick it when I finish my career and then I'm able to have a cry when DIY SOS is on? Uh, <laughs> Keep yourself, Phil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm using an analogy of someone I know yeah, from, right. from the military. <laughs> a friend. Yeah, yeah friend. I'm, a, I'm a decent crier now. So have you been post-career then, sorry, not post-career, post-cycling, professor, is that something you've been unpicking yourself? I think I've just, it's been a long, long process into normal life and it's long going, to be honest. But I'm getting there, slowly. And is that through just conversations, chatting, inter- again, thinking, do you still do journals? Uh, no, well, the odd time. It's it's quite sporadic. Sometimes I write things down, but it's, uh, it, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not consistent with it, which has been sort of the, I don't know. Would you ever consider writing yeah, a book? Yeah, the Achilles heel of my life. I wouldn't write a book because I would want to be 100% truthful and honest if I wrote a book and I don't feel I'm in the right place to to tell all now. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I'm sort of quite quite happy to keep to myself. I'm not saying I never would. Um, yeah, but we'll see. But I mean, sorry, going back to that chimp before we move on, I think... And it might have been one of the problems, but that's been my worst enemy and my best friend um, at times, which probably comes down to, again, the inconsistency. Because, my God, did I use that chimp to sort of win some of my biggest races. Because I, I used to perform at my best when, yeah, me and, me and the chimp were, were best mates. Because I could just almost reach another level. Um, and I used to use emotion hugely to sort of to get to that point. So that might be an example. Like, so there's a lot of thoughts saying night before that big hilly stage. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't. You haven't and, a, a mental pint with the chimp, getting them on side. But that, that's. But that's the problem because, and that that probably why it, it does come back to why I was inconsistent. But the way Steve Peters used to say it, and it, you had to work with logic and go into computer mode. I could never feel like I could really. It didn't, and everyone's different. You've got to forget. So that could work amazingly for Chris Hoy or Ed Clancy. Yeah. But I'm the type of character that needed to be like I am the best in the world but this is what I'm going to go out to do today or I'm going to show you or this is for you back home or this is it was always all my best results were emotion driven and that that but that's just how I worked but ne- negative or positive emotion so it's like is it I'm going to win here to prove that prick wrong down, down at the pub or is it I'm going to win here to prove my family right. It was all. It was always. It was always positive emotion. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the reason why I ask is that I know I was I was listening, keen to listen to the way people talk about how they like they're motivated and how they use chimp. And you know, some people are very much motivated by what they want in life towards a positive sort of outcome. Uh, but but some people are equally 
is is powerfully motivated by what they're terrified of. You know, you know, I I, I think probably Cav's a good example. Of this he he rode his bike so he didn't have to work in the bank more than as much as anything. Is my observation. You know, when he talks about working in the bank and kind of hating it as much and thinking, well, I've got I've got to make it as a cyclist, otherwise this is what what's going to happen. And that's an example of a away from motivation and pe different people use it in different ways um, but it's interesting I suppose the thing as well going back to what you're saying Pete about the um, the emotion is that's the romantic side of cycling as well again yeah so you look at like the riders you know I always remember like Le Monde and Fignon and they were just attacking on sort of impulse and there were no radios so it was all right I've got this I'm going to go for it and then one of them might hit the wall and then the other one go by. Pantani as well. Oh, yeah, Pantani. All those riders. All those guys. And I suppose that's who you grew up watching. I did, but none of them have really yeah, ended yeah, up doing yeah, so well. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, maybe not the best examples. <laughs> but but it's you're exactly right. I, I you're, you're bang on, to be honest. The, the, the more the way they rode, though, as yeah. opposed to like now, and I, and I suppose Sky pioneered this clinical approach in the of using the radios, using the team as effectively as possible and just delivering the rider to the very end. I suppose that's not the same as what you, when you're growing up, right? What you, you, fell, what you fell in love with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, third pillar, leadership. I suppose there's many aspects to talk through your career. So let's maybe maybe jump around a bit, but let's start in the middle. Talk about I think it was the 14 tour, Froome, team leader. How how's that? Is that a dynamic of like the the if it's Dave Bradford is this is what or Rob this is the this is the process and <clears throat> in regard to riding the stage. And by default, he's the leader, or is that leader taking that leadership role within that environment? And what had you observed that, or is it because it's a team mentality? There's there is no let's call it a pyramid. It's just we're all for the same purpose. We're all leaders here. How does that? I think if we talk solely about cycling, I've had obviously quite a few different leaders throughout my career. Um, just to compare a few, Brad Wiggins compared to Chris Froome completely different and I don't know if that was because Brad was going through stuff at the time or th that's just how he had to operate in order to, to sort of win the races he did but he yeah you'd feel very awkward in his presence uh, I remember the first training awkward very awkward yeah okay. which is not great as a leader um, because you want to make feel, make everyone feel inclusive um, and comfortable if you don't mind digging in what do you mean by awkward well, like, just, you wouldn't know where to look. You wouldn't oh, know okay. what to say. Right. Uh, what else would awkward mean? I, I, I was trying to maybe <laughs> see some, yeah. 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 Um, I, know, I suppose you... I did, vintage Pete Van. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah well, for an example, I mean, this was even, this was 2010, I think, or 11. So, yeah, my early Sky years, I wasn't part of the tour team yet. I remember coming down for breakfast, and uh, there was only Brad sat at this big, long table set out for the riders. And I went and got my omelette and I was like, well, I'm going to have to sit opposite him because I'm not, don't want to be that guy, you know? Um, and I sat opposite him. He didn't even say morning and just picked up his newspaper and just started reading it like in front of my face, basically. And I, I, I'll always remember that. And now I look back as a as sort of, yeah, an adult because I wasn't then and a, and a dad, which he was both back then. I just, I can't fathom why you do that. You know, it's like, I think in terms of being a leader and being an older person on a 30-man team, it's part of your responsibility to, to make the younger riders feel comfortable and to help them grow. Did you uh, think that was acceptable behaviour at the time? No. No. I was like, this is... I thought, I, I, at that age, you don't think into too much. I just thought it was a bit weird and a bit... Awkward. Yeah, awkward. Um, and then, yeah, Chris Froome was... He wasn't the leader where he would sort of grab you by scruff of the neck and say and rally you up and this is what we're going to do today and get you fired up but he was very very good at making you feel part of the team and making you feel all the stuff that brad didn't do basically making him feel comfortable making it a good environment and space to to work in and then with that you you wanted to get you wanted to get everything out of yourself for him and and that was great and then and mark cavendish who it was a completely different ball game to riding for a GC rider because it was just specific days where there were sprint days. So it was talking about emotion, probably the most heightened emotions I've ever had in my life because he expected so much from you and you felt it and you knew that he was giving 
absolutely everything. So for some leaders, if and at some other sprinters that I've worked for, you know that they're only 85 or 90% in. in. Cav, every sprint opportunity, it was a Giro d'Italia, he was, he would die for that win. And with that, you were like, I've got to die for the win, you know? Yeah. And I remember crossing one finish line. I was like, it was, G was his last man, Geraint Thomas, and I was in front of G, so second to last man. So quite, you know, far up the, the train, yeah. Yeah, the, the sprint lead up train. Um, so, you know, you've got to think about all the fighting for positions, you're on the limit into every corner. Um, and I remember finishing one, one of the stages and he'd won. And I was literally in tears because I was that. It was like a, it was such a release, you know, that everything had gone to plan because you were just so on the limit of trying to do everything for him. So there was like three different sort of. What was his skills in getting that out of out of people? He was like what I mentioned for him. He wasn't. He was quite good at sort of. It wasn't aggression. It was just. I don't know. You felt like you're you really felt like you were against everyone and you're in a bit of a fight, you know? Yeah, building, a, I guess, a team, like, going to war. Yeah, going to war bit, with yeah. him. Yeah. And, uh... And that, was that 2012, was it? When that was, was 2012, yeah. But and, and another funny story from that was, um, you got, it was, throughout our whole career, it's been quite a funny relationship with me and Cap because we are really good friends, but I've always been eight-year-old Pete on the club run. <laughs> so, <laughs> I remember having a, we had a discussion about the team time trial that started with a team time trial, I think, that year. And I disagreed with him in front of, like, everyone. Uh, and he sort of looked at me and didn't really say anything. And then we rode off and he, got, he brought me over. He goes, Pete, you got to realise, you just got to realise, lad, like, I'm not Mark Cavendish from the Isle of Man here. I'm Mark Cavendish world champion. And that was it. I was like, all right, yeah, got that. Um... Yeah, but then within within the teams as well, you've also got road captains, which in Froome's case, it was Luke Rowe, and he still is now, and they act as more of like a leader out on the road. So the GC rider only has to solely really focus on their performance. Not many better in the peloton, I think, than Luke Rowe at that as well. Yeah, yeah, he's really built that sort of... Before him, it was Bernie Eisel, mm. who was part of Cavs' team pretty much his whole career. But yeah, Luke's really built a career on, on doing that. And if you navigate towards looking at leaders which of those three do you feel you fit best into as a rider or what do you think uh, as mean? a rider yeah so in those circumstances you're under those let's maybe discount brad but from Froome style to, to cabs the problem with cat there will there will definitely be some gc um leaders who are like cav maybe contador is a bit more like that uh, but i would have struggled maybe over three weeks to have that every day intensity. it was quite intensity yeah, yeah. You got to remember the long races, Grand Tours. It was great for what we were doing, um, but yeah, I think for me, yeah, Chris Froome was it was it was perfect at the time. What's your leadership style now? Well, it's it's changed. I mean, in terms of you can't really compare it too much with what I'm doing now. But I would go down more the Chris Froome route, but then I bring a bit of Cav out in me when it's needed. I think it's really important to to not overly talk all the time at the riders because then they sort of everything you say just eventually just goes over the head over their head so I think it's really important to when you have something important to say they listen um, and then yeah that sort of all-inclusive comfortable environment I don't want anyone to ever I want everyone to have a voice I want everyone to feel um, part of the team and included in it and that was sort of what I sort of aimed to do at the start of the year with Trinity so uh then should we just look at leaders in trainers, coach, uh, you know, team managers? Similar, different styles, different approaches. What was your experiences there? We obviously touched before we came on, like Dave Brailsford as a leader. What what do you see there that you take out of that and use in your life now? Um, was it a bit of everything. Good question, actually. I had Dave Brailsford and Ralph Denk was the, I only rode for two two teams throughout my career, uh, and yeah, I mean Brailsford was just head and shoulders above what Ralph Denk was at Borough. Um, he really felt like he was just all over everything, like in every department. He was always talking to the riders. He he just lived and breathed it. Um, his speeches were just world class and you were just hanging on every thread. And uh, yeah, he was he was he was just a real really good motivator, basically. Yeah, right. And so you just touched on that Trinity, so what are you up to nowadays post cycling? Yeah, so from what we see on TV. 
Yeah, so obviously the TV stuff, that's only once a year at Tour de France. Would you like to do more of that? Yeah, I've done it for, I think this is my fifth year. 19 to, yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. It depends how my career goes with Trinity. And obviously if you go to a World Tour team and do the same job there, then you won't be able to, to commentate at the Tour. So I've got a, I'm still going to do that next year, be at, the, be at the Tour again with ITV. I'm still with Trinity Racing next year. So that's been, I mean, it, this year has been a great sort of learning curve in leadership outside of sort of being on a bike. Um, and not just leadership with riders, um, staff as well, which was a massive, a massive learning curve. I mean, yeah, sort of managing staff is probably the biggest um, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? What challenge. Yeah, challenge mm. um, out of the whole job. Dynamics, the drama. Di drama, dynamics. Um, yeah, especially now everyone's got social media. I mean, I'm taught everyone's got so had social media for ten years, but you know, they see you see certain staff and they're like, "Oh, what's he doing? He's on holiday, or he's doing this." And you've got your mechanic driving three days back from Portugal. Um, you got you know they some some really don't put in the work that others do. Um, yeah, and it's just a constant sort of management of that. Having been a racer and maybe being on that other side, you more empathy for those support people and. Not yeah. saying you used to have, because I'm sure you weren't yeah, yeah, yeah. of them, but yeah, oh, massively. I can't, I cannot believe what goes into running a cycling team. Like it's blown my mind, just the amount of work and hours and and again sacrifice that, yeah, all the staff put in. Because um, you just, I mean, as a rider, you just turn up and throw your suitcase to the to the swan. Yeah, jump in the car, turn up. Your rooms already, everything's done. Um, and you wouldn't. You, gave a second thought to the fact that Mario, Claudio, sorry, the bus drivers had to drive three, three days from Belgium to get to the south of Italy to start the Giro. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's probably the biggest challenge with Trinity, to be honest, because it is a low budget team. Um, we have to do everything. And so, you know, on the World Tour teams, they have four direct sportifs on every race that just fly in and all the cars are already there. But we have to drive to every race from most of the time from our service course um, in the south of England. So, I mean, you start in pretty much every race you do with at least usually like two day driving you and then drive back after it as well. So you're constantly knackered. Through the tunnel. Yeah, through the tunnel. <laughs> and do you see that, is that your preferred trajectory of your next stage of your career? That's like getting the poor since, term, but going that route rather than... Like, yeah, since I've, since I've stopped cycling, I mean, that's it's been the one job that I get the, the buzz out of, you know, even though you are in a car, there's, you have to be so on it. Um, even when you're not, even when the, there's not much happening in the race, there's still riders coming back for bottles and et cetera, et cetera. You've got to be on it with radio tour of what's going on in the race. You've got to be, if, if there's radios, there's a lot of races where there's no radios under 23. You've obviously got to, to be all over with, with where they are on the stage, what's coming up, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's in terms of, yeah, being on your feet and feeling like it's a job satisfaction, great job satisfaction at the end of the day. It feels like you finish the race and it's it's the closest feeling to, to stepping off the bike. Yeah. Mm. So one final question for me. You, I mean, it's maybe a stupid question to, but you're proud of your career. Do you look back and go, oh, I did a lot there or do you not reflect on it? Mm. No, I am proud of it, but it's it doesn't feel like me at all. I look back on it, it's like watching, literally watching a different person. Mm. If I see any video clips or interviews, I I can't recognise that as me. It's absolutely bizarre. It's the weirdest feeling ever. Is that frustrating? Because um, my observation of that comment would be, at that moment, you're not present in those moments. To yeah. Like that, that it almost... Or I, I don't know if I'm completely... Dissociated sort of yeah. thing. This is, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, I feel like two completely different people. To, to what I am now and what I was then and maybe that's it do you wish you could with the brain you have now so the answer is yes go back and be 10 and do uh, things differently or well, not differently but with the knowledge and experience they have to, I mean everyone would I suppose wouldn't they yeah I wish I, I mean my own my only regret is taking what I had for granted and allowing that to fester and eventually lose the passion for what I was doing but I wouldn't change my childhood, 
the early days of my race and anything I did for the world because I absolutely loved it at the time. So anything I was doing might have been wrong, it might have been right, but I had I had the ball doing it. So yeah. that, I suppose that end bit that ultimately doesn't happen if all these great things don't happen. So it, it's almost okay that you know that's the way it was then. It's great because all this before was led into that, which is all the uh, like yeah. we talk about the career and. There's not many people sat around with, with medals, with you know, just reaching the pinnacle of whatever they're doing, and business, it's, sport, it's life. Exactly, and even like going back to all those performances and medals, etc. It's just as it's it's just as hard living a normal life sometimes as it is living that life. And so everyone absolutely like I feel like I make sacrifices all the time now, even though I probably don't compared to well it's just it's a different context, isn't it? And with all those performances and everything I did my life could go in a complete different direction over the next 20 years and none of that would matter anyway. So you've got to keep up the, the sort of work ethic and you've got to stick to these pillars. Mm. And it's really important too because anyone's life can sort of slowly derail and it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the course of time, doesn't it? Yeah, and it, well, it could happen like that as well. I was, what I, I was about to say, you know, I chat with, with Liam a lot, who I work with and then um, talk about perspective, you know, and, yeah. you know, he, he, he feels the pressure, Liam, you know, he really does. Um, you know, he, 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 I think one of the things that probably will transform his performances in the future is if he can find a way to be able to deal with the a massive amount of, of internal pressure he puts on himself. And one of the things I talked about is perspective. Um, when I left, when I left the RAF, I went and worked at Battleback working with soldiers that had, you know, that had life-changing injuries worked with guys that have been blown up, lost limbs. And when you sit down with people like that that have had their whole life changed and with beyond any recognition and they have this mindset about how they live life, suddenly you think, my, my life's pretty good actually. Mm. And one of the things I say to Liam is, you know, at the end of the day you're playing tennis. You know, you know, this is it's a game you were playing when you were eight years old and you loved 18, 28. And when you're 58, you'll look back and you'll have been playing tennis. You won't have been getting blown up doing it. So, you know, let's just have perspective and Try, if you can, enjoy the experience, um, and then the rest of it will take care of itself. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's, yeah, a great point. My question would be, or would have, would be to to that is in the thick of my career. How would I learn perspective? That's that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's like wisdom, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of uh, Martin's questions is if you could go back with, that's the nature of being a human is, when you're. 18 years old your brain is an 18 year old brain it's not a 48 year old yeah. brain uh, and it's the same you know like you say with, with Liam you make it a, a great point Pete how, how do you whilst you're living that life develop that perspective reflection thinking about it you know maybe going to meeting people like like that I've described and then giving yourself a new way of looking at it but I, I think it's difficult to do though well, thanks for joining us, Peter. It was a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. It's uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. Amazing.